I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Chris. He's an amputee and a firefighter. Let's talk about it. All right, guys. Um, this should be really fun. We're sitting down uh, with uh, an athlete of sorts. Uh, a web athlete. Uh, I mean, like, <laughs> I, I mean, really. If I feel like we're sitting down with Buzz Lightyear, I, looking at Chris on the screen here, you're, uh, you're, you're, you look like a true hero. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're, you're jacked, and your fucking ch- jaw is chiseled <laughs> as one could be. You, you do look like a Marvel character. <laughs> you do, yeah. You like, like yeah. a true superhero. Yeah. But, what, but what's really funny is, uh, is this superhero in front of us is actually competing in Canada's Ultimate Challenge, which, uh, which sounds like it's its own sort of. Uh, um, uh, you know, superhero selection process for, selection for, for, process. for Mars for the yeah, Mars mission. That's right. That's right. Uh, which it is not. We'll get into that in a little bit. But before we do, Chris, uh, take a moment to introduce yourself to our listeners and uh, give us a little bit of insight into uh, who you are. Yeah. Um, so obviously, name is Chris Cedarstrand. Uh, yeah, just I've been uh, very fortunate through my whole life. I, I grew up in Saskatoon, just outside Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, actually. And Excelled at hockey, was fortunate enough to play in the Western Hockey League out here and ultimately lost uh, lost that career due to concussions. And from that point, I got into firefighting and in my off-tour days, uh, ended up having a, a pretty traumatic accident where I ended up having my right leg amputated above the knee. Mm-hmm. And from there, you know, it was a, a pretty long journey, but eventually found sport again and, and got back into that sort of athletic life and was fortunate enough to represent our country for a lot of years on the national sledge hockey team, Paralympic alternate, lots of world championships, that kind of fun stuff. Cool. And then, yeah, I uh, got into Canada's ultimate challenge this last summer, which was yeah. an incredible experience. Yeah. So for people who are unaware, um, Canada's ultimate challenge is a, a new TV series that's coming to CBC and CBC gym. Um, and it's basically, it turns the entire country into a giant obstacle course for, um, these like superstar coaches and their teams of athletic players. Um, Chris, were you one of the coaches or were you one of the, one of the players? No, I was one of the players. Hell yeah. Sweet. Um, it, I mean, it, it, like, does it take, where did it take place? Can we talk a little bit about, I like, cause I, I do want to get into the, the accident and, and sort of your story of like how you ended up where you were, but, um, for the, for the ultimate challenge, like, is it coast to coast? Do they do they literally take over the uh, the entire country? Yeah, yeah, it was it was coast to coast. Um, you know, from yeah, I was BC all the way out east to I believe that. Oh geez, I think it was New Brunswick. Not uh, yeah, it was a, it was a lot of traveling in a very short period of time. Cool, cool, cool. very cool. Yeah. Say that much, but amazing, amazing locations that we got to visit. You know, lots of incredible landmarks, and yeah, we got to do some really crazy challenges at at these you know very prestigious landmarks. 
Uh, I, I love that. I'm uh, I'm interested in uh, I'm I'm interested in going back um, like even before the accident and, and asking you about mm. um, asking you about your uh, your experience with hockey and with uh, with concussions. I mean, I see here that you went to that that you went to um, school for fi- they went to firefighting school in 2004. So I'm assuming your your hockey days were uh, in the uh, like late 90s or early 2000s. Yeah, I played in the Western League from uh, 1996 to 2000. And in that time period, I mean, it was, yeah, lots of ups and downs. I was actually ranked to go in the NHL draft at one point. And then ultimately just, uh, yeah, the concussion sort of took hold. And the last concussion I got, uh, I'm going to say, I probably don't remember about two weeks after it. It was just a complete blank. And then I actually started having vision issues just because of the amount of pressure and swelling that was was sort of Jeez. Had accumulated, I guess. I mean, because that was back in the days before concussion protocol, and yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I'm I'm a big guy. I was a big power forward, so you're you know you're getting into fights, you're bumping and grinding in the corners, and it was just oh, you got your bell rung, and yeah. off you went right, and it was just I guess one of those accumulative things over the years that finally, when that last one happened, it was just you know. I was probably dumb enough to keep playing, but my neurologist was just like, "Nope, you're uh, <laughs> okay." So, so you were, so you were, so you were told, like you were kind of told, or or um, maybe uh, maybe told isn't the right word, but encouraged, uh, encouraged to to hang up the skates because uh, I'm, I'm like I'm thinking of I'm thinking of like Eric Lindros and growing up watching Lindros play, and every time Scott Stevens t- yeah. took his head off, you were like, "Holy shit, Lindros has got to retire!" Like he's just getting. He's been hit too many times, but the conversation around concussions. Yeah. Like you said, it's just your bell rung. You know, you take a big hit, like it's totally different. Like what was the difference? What was like kind of the balance between how you felt about leaving hockey and how like the medical, like uh, your neurologist, as you said, felt about you leaving hockey? Yeah. I mean, obviously from, from my point of view, I mean, dedicating the amount of time I had dedicated to it, right? I mean, I moved away from home at 14. It was your whole life. So, you know, when you have that, you know, especially when you have the prospects of potentially moving forward and, um, you know, playing professional hockey, it's it's something you don't want to, you don't want to have to give up. And so, I mean, obviously when when my neurologist went, no, you're you're done. Um, You know, I, I knew, I guess at that time it was, probably the right thing to do but it was still a pretty bitter pill to have to swallow knowing mm. that you know you i'd invested so much and yeah, i mean mm. at that point you you know you're sort of not saying you're putting all your eggs in one basket but you've yeah i mean a lot of stuff was you know going to fire school wasn't even in the picture at that point right like i'm just mm. i was solely focused on hockey so it was sort of like hitting a really hard reset yeah at 20 and then you got to try and figure life out again Speaking of that, like reset was, did you feel like in hindsight, did you find that an an emotionally challenging time? Uh, I definitely was. I mean, between sort of losing, I'm not going to say losing that identity, but losing that part of myself as a hockey player and then dealing with a lot of the post-concussion syndrome that I was dealing with. It was, uh, yeah, it was a really, really tough time. Um, You know, I mean, you're, you're, you're really trying to struggle to find what you want to do and where you want to go in life again. And it was, you know, fortunate for me. I mean, it, it did take a little while, but, you know, growing up, it was a, it was a weird thing. I either wanted to play in the NHL or be a firefighter. So mm. once, you know, the, the head sort of cleared up a little bit and I realized that hockey wasn't in the cards, 
I just decided that firefighting was the route I was going to take. Yeah, that was, and that was your own like your own decision. There wasn't anything in particular that spurred that decision to go to fire school once once the cur- hockey career was out. No, it was pretty much yeah, just something that that I decided that I was going to mm-hmm. do and started training and and getting you know in shape and getting ready for um, just the physical and the interview process and everything that you have mm-hmm. to do to go to to fire school out here. How, how so, grueling is fire school? Like, like the the actual physical aspect of it. It looks amazing. Like, it looks it looks so hardcore. Like watching the, you know, like when you watch guys training for like firefighting competitions and stuff. Like it's yeah, those are it's, nuts. It's so nuts. There's definitely like so a cool. glorification to it. Yeah, like it's yeah. A, I mean, like but like a, as an it's a hero sport, totally. But like a, a, a occupation. But as an athlete, like how <laughs> like did you have an appreciation for like the the physical, um, like the, the 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 way that the job like physically is is so demanding. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it is one of those things where, I mean, there are a lot of, you know, ex-athletes that end up in firefighting. Um, Just for the fact that, I mean, A, you got the camaraderie and that team aspect that really transfers over from sports. And then, I mean, yeah, the physical aspect of it is something that, you know, is always, always kept up and always pushed, right? And I mean, and it's not, it's again, that's that team aspect. I want to be the best me I can be because I'm, I have guys relying on me you know, when you're going out to a call. So, mm-hmm. I mean, if I'm in bad shape or I'm not working well, you know, I'm, it's not, it's more of a safety thing. And at the end of the day, I, I'm really curious about the uh, mental health side of things. And um, one thing that I think would, I, I totally relate to the, uh, the like team aspect and camaraderie of, of going into firefighting. Um, I have a friend who really good friend who just became a firefighter about a year ago and I was asking him a little bit about this. I'm curious what your thoughts are. So when you go into firefighting, you're obviously showing up to the scene of what can be oftentimes or, or sometimes very traumatic experiences. Um, and we've heard a lot of first responders who have talked about uh, PTSD. Is, is there a different level of, of sort of trauma in the experience of going into firefighting versus like being an athlete playing hockey? And how do you rely on the support of your your teammates in the fire department to get through those more emotionally stressful times? No, definitely. I mean, that's something that, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you learn over time, you know, in the, in the fire industry is to sort of compartmentalize. And when you end up out there to some of these calls, uh, you know, if you're out there to a really horrific call, then I mean, yeah, you're you, first and foremost, you're out there to do a job. And a lot of the times that's the way I, you know, would, would view things. But, you know, in some of these cases, I mean, they just hit home, I guess, mm-hmm. right? And, and that's where you do, I mean, you have an amazing structure built up within, within the hall and within the whole system where mental health is really, you know, sort of taken a, you know, a very leading edge, I guess, mm-hmm. in the way that it's approached so that we're not doing or, you know, the departments aren't doing the old school way of just, you know, you come back and you just shove it all down deep. And then, <laughs> yeah. you know, at some point it boils over, right? If, if you're going out to these things, there's, there's so many steps in place now and so many things that you can, you know, where you can reach out to, to just make sure that your mental health is staying in check. Because obviously, I mean, you know, if you're going out to a, you know, an MVC or something like that, and there's kids involved and you've got kids, I mean, there's just sort of, you know, a moment of clarity sometime for, for some firefighters. I know my fire instructor, when I went to school, talked about it and, you know, he went out to a fire call and I mean, he'd been out to, you know, tons of these. He actually was an MVC and it just happened to be the same uh, car seat that he, you know, they used in their oh. family. 
that mm. that was in this car. And, you know, unfortunately, in that MVC, nobody said, you know, there was no survivors in it. But, you know, that seeing that car seat was just his sort of moment of clarity with it all, right? And mm. it just hits hard and and you need to have those supports put in place and like i said it's it's come a long way like i think mental health as a whole just within our society has come come a long way i mean even from the time when i had my accident to now in the way that things are viewed mm-hmm. um but you know it's it's definitely one of those first and foremost <laughs> things within all the emergency services right whether that's mm-hmm. ambulance whether that's police whether that's fire um, you know, they've, they've really done an incredible job at making sure that, that everybody in those industries has accessibility to whatever they need as far as mental health. Cause I mean, if you're not in a good headspace, you're not going to be doing your job right. Totally. Yeah. What, what did you, did, did you learn something about your own mental health through your experience in firefighting and having to face some of those more challenging situations and what sort of like when you talk about the structures that were in place, like what, what are some of those structures that you could lean on in those cases? Um, well, I mean, yeah, obviously you have, you know, the people that you're, you're within your own department, right. And you, you do, you become really, you know, brothers and sisters with a lot of these, you know, a lot of the people in there. And so, I mean, that's sort of your first, you know, your first reach when, when something like that happens here is you're able to, to go and approach them and then it just you know can work you work your way up the line right you've got you've got your lieutenants you got your captains you've got your chiefs and i mean fortunate enough out in in alberta here especially being in an, in the md not so much in calgary you know it's a much smaller much more tight-knit community that way right mm-hmm. i mean it's you know maybe a few hundred firefighters within the md opposed to you know thousands in calgary mm-hmm. um and our, uh, you know, my deputy chief out here, Greg Scalia, was incredible at the way that that he made sure that mental health was, you know, first and foremost with mm. within the departments. Um, mm. And he's done, you know, an incredible job out out here in Alberta, making sure that that's really transferred to a lot of departments. And so, you know, regardless of of who you reached out to here, I mean, you know, if you didn't find that support you needed. At the bottom rung, you could keep working up, and they just had more and more uh, supports built into that. <laughs> it's it's interesting how like how I I feel like I, I know that the mental health conversation is like has come a long way, in, especially in the in I mean overall, but in the first responders um, sort of orbit over the past like you know five six years, it's really it's it seems to have really progressed and is and is talked about more and kind of like recognizing the things that we can do better and and implementing things. Um, but like thinking about going back, uh, going back, you know, 20 years or something like that. And, and, and something that I find that some of these, uh, professions may have like taken shit for before, um, and may, and, and maybe with like, maybe with like really hard, like really tangible, um, like process oriented structural things might not have been, might not have been like always there solidly. Um, but when I think about those things and I think about like shit that, um, sports takes a lot of, uh, uh, there's a uh, sports organizations take a lot of shit for not having like mental, m- you know, enough mental health support and stuff like that. But like you said, Chris, at the beginning of kind of like how you transition from hockey into, um, this environment of firefighting and how like the similarities between the teamwork and the camaraderie of it all, like, even though I think, I grew up playing hockey and high level hockey and had, had professional aspirations. And I, and I always felt like, like sport was looked at as a place where, 
where your mental health could deteriorate because you might not have the support to be able to talk to somebody. But at the same time, I always felt like, I always felt like the people that on my team were the people I was the most emotionally vulnerable with, like that I was, that I was able to be the most emotionally vulnerable with them because our relationship with like how we went out and played games wouldn't really work unless we were, unless we were like on the same page together. And that didn't just mean like how we played together, but it meant like how we lived together in the dressing room and stuff. And I can, I can see how in firefighting that, that if you go back a number of years, even though there maybe maybe there wasn't as many like really structural supports with mental health, that camaraderie, like you can lean on those people because you have to have that trust with amongst each other because of the because just of like the nature of the job and the and, the, and the, like the seriousness of the job. No, hundred percent. And I mean, it's like you really hit the nail on the head with that. And I think that's why there you do see so many people with that athletic background transition over to to firefighting you know more specifically like the team sports mm. um there's lots of football players lots of hockey players i mean they just it, it's just such a natural fit because yeah you've already you know chances are if you've been playing a, a high level of hockey like that you're not one of those toxic human beings that's you know you those people sort of get weeded out over the years right and i mean so if you're able to come in and, and say you've played a very elite level you know hockey or athletics, whatever, whatever game you're playing, um, you know, they, they know exactly what, what they're going to be getting. Right. And I mean, that was one of the things that I know when I wrote it, went in to go write an aptitude test here in Calgary in the early two thousands, they literally asked that right off the hop was, you know, if you've played a, a high level of sports, put your hand up, <laughs> you know, it was back when, you know, they, I don't think they could so much get away with things like that now, but <laughs> yeah. you know, they, they, they want to know, right. Um, because if that's the case, you know, you've already got a lot of those things that are integrated in you that they want within the system already. Yeah, it lends itself to something like uh, I heard this maybe a year or two ago. I can't remember when I when it was, but um, it was uh, I'm I've become very uh, I've become a very avid cyclist over the last few years. And I was watching a race and there was a commentator on who was retired <laughs> and he was talking about he had started doing work with Goldman Sachs. And that Goldman Sachs has a program of identifying like ex-pro athletes, regardless of like whatever their experience is, because they basically see ex-pro athletes as like the ultimate moldable people because they've got so many transferable skills from sport that they're like, you know, like they like ex-pros know how to how to adapt and take direction better than anybody on the planet. And Mm -hmm. so like like regardless whether they have zero experience in like the field that they're going to ultimately be working in, they, they have the, they have the confidence that, that that person can learn and take direction to learn whatever needs to be done to like fit into this. Totally. The hard skills can be taught, but the soft skills are harder to teach. Yes. Yeah. Chris, I'd love to kind of dive into, uh, the, the story of your accident. Um, I know that this, this happened, um, at the age of 25 when you were, Sort of, uh, I guess, like in a transitionary transitionary period, waiting to hear about the you know prospects for firefighting. Is that correct? Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it was happened on uh, September eleventh, two thousand and five. So I was just uh, just in the prospects. I was actually received the phone call that day <laughs> that Whoa. everything you know everything was going to be a hundred percent and uh, with firefighting and but. You know, being young, um, you know, me and my wife had just got married uh, about two months, I guess, before the accident. And yeah, you know, it was 
doing some road construction work that you know at that time and went out um decided that yeah knew the phone call was going to be coming but you know, go out and work so that we have some you know making cash i guess and mm-hmm. uh, it was just uh you know a really crappy situation i guess um you know job said i was working on it was a piece of machinery that that ultimately shouldn't have been on the road um you know going working for a company that you know there was literally next to no training uh, no safety, you know, inspections and and just being young and naive, like I, I could have said no myself, I guess. But, you know, you're out there and, and it was a really old guard type situation, I guess, at that point, right? Where, you know, if you bitched and complained, then, you know, they would find somebody else that wouldn't bitch and complain. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I'm going to say, you know, for me, I'm I'm actually glad that that the accident happened to me and not somebody else because I've been lucky enough to be able to turn to turn, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, really probably 15, 20 seconds of shit into something, um, you know, that I'm quite proud of and and I'm able to go out there and be a leader and, and help people through things. But yeah, you know, I'm backing this giant 70,000 pound packer. Um, what is uh, a packer? The, uh, my, my best, well, for you guys, because you guys are <laughs> you were talking, uh, I'm going to date myself a little bit. I'm sure you guys all watched Bugs Bunny. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tunes, well, that's what like they always got run over with, right? Big steel drum in the front, <laughs> right? Yes, oh, yeah. You know, they they <laughs> yeah. would pop right back up after they got run over and flattened out. But um, so that's yeah, not what I, happens in real life. I, no, yeah, no. that's that's not quite how it works, unfortunately. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I was backing this packer up the hill, and I mean, this piece of equipment ultimately didn't have brakes. I mean, they had to leave it in gear. Um, you know, literally wedge it against the concrete. You know, we we're working in a median. You have to wedge it against the concrete at night to make sure that, you know, that this thing didn't roll away. And oh as God. I was backing it up a hill, um, it was sort of notorious for slipping out of gear. And uh, it just happened as I was backing this thing up the hill and it started rolling back down. Um, and I mean, uh, near the intersection of Bowen Sarcy here in Calgary, uh, I mean, it's a pretty large hill. And so this thing starts gaining momentum going forward. And ultimately, I tried running it into the con, like into the asphalt where we, you know, would essentially park it at nighttime just to try and slow it down because there's no, I'm hitting the brakes and I'm not having anything happen. I'm trying to get it back into gear. Nothing's happening. Um, so I do that. And unfortunately for me, it ends up jumping, you know, goes up sort of that six inch lip. And now I'm on the concrete or the asphalt mm. going down the hill. And now this thing's really starting to, really starting to pick up speed. And at that point, I essentially came down. I had two decisions that that I could make. I could have jumped off that packer at that point. And I mean, probably would have had a few bumps and bruises and scratches or um, stay on the packer and stop it from going into the intersection at Bowen Sarcy. And I mean, my accident happened at about like 520. And this is a very busy intersection. So um, it was gonna Jesus. just it was probably just gonna like barrel down into some it would have steamrolled right through the intersection. Wow. Uh, I mean, there were already cars, you know, lined up, you know. I mean, like I said, very, very busy intersection. Um, and so ultimately I decided to try and get it back into the median where we were working. And you know, the issue that I had now is that like six inch sort of lip where I had got up onto the asphalt to begin with had now almost become like a two-foot drop. Oh wow. So somehow I, you know, I almost i'm not going to say i jumped it but got it back into you know into the uh into the median where we were working and then just as i went to go and jump off it hit a pile of dirt and flipped 
And as we were both going through the air, it essentially landed on me and sort of bounced. And I kept going one way and it it went the other. Um, so I, uh, you know, not the not fun part was, is I was uh, conscious throughout the whole thing. And oh so I remember laying there and reaching down and grabbing my leg and just going, holy shit. Like I'm pulling my hand up. I got subcutaneous tissue all over my hands. Like my leg had just completely evolved. Wow. Um, and for those of you that don't know what evolved is, I mean, it's like if you take a Christmas orange and just stomp on it, right? It just oh. like, <laughs> oh. and so I'm, I'm obviously losing a fair bit of blood at my point at this point. And, um, you know, the one savior that I had that day is there was a trauma nurse coming home from Foothills Hospital and she jumped out of her, you know, jumped out of her car, grabbed a trauma bag, got over to me and just started getting the bleeding. Um, under control the best she could and ultimately the uh you know an ambulance shows up and at this time i'm starting to lose a little bit of consciousness just through loss of blood and i remember getting loaded up into the ambulance and you know telling uh telling the two paramedics like just you know tell my wife i love her and mm. i thought i was done you know ended up uh passing out completely at that point or just losing consciousness and you know basically a little over a week week and a half later um you know waking up and finding out that you know in a life-saving injury or surgery they ended up having to amputate my right leg above the knee so it was quite the wow. yeah i mean basically waking up one morning expecting to you know knowing you're going to be a firefighter mm-hmm. next morning you wake up essentially you're left with uh you know a very you know, significant injury and, and disability. And then just to sort of, you know, kick me a little bit more when I was down, they were actually trying to save my leg, which would have been absolutely horrendous had they been able to do that. But they were harvesting veins from my other leg. So they ended up chopping up my left leg oh, <laughs> to no. try and save my right leg. And then my, oh my small artery blew out. They just had to do the rush amputation. And so, you know, I ultimately ended up with damage on both sides. Oh my God. Oh. Can, can we take this back a little? So hold on. Your, um, your left leg, which is the leg that you still have. Yes. They, they were trying to harvest veins from that leg because it, it, they were, they were attempting to try to save the leg that was gone and they were going to use those veins for like the, I guess the reattachment. Is that the, the, the process yeah, there? They were, yeah, they were essentially just trying to get like, it was a weird, a weird time, I guess. Like, you know, it's funny if you have traumatic injuries or something like that happen now, um, you know, I mean, even for people that not necessarily even a traumatic injury, but it's, you know, amputations actually, because technology has come so far, mm. you know, especially for baloney amputees. I mean, even, even somewhat for above knee amputees. I mean, when I look at what I've been able to do to get back into firefighting and all of that stuff, um, you know, had they done, had been able to save my leg, I wouldn't have been able to, it would essentially would have been warm and pink, right? right? That was mm-hmm. the way they would have described that they described it to me. Um, and so at that point, they just, the amputation was always like sort of a second thought. And so for some reason they were trying, you know, obviously I had no, you know, bearing over what their decision was when they brought me into the OR. I mean, this was just done on their, they were doing this on their own accord. And, and this is, and this is even though, even though amputating and having an appendage uh, and having a prosthetic is like, is probably going to be like exceptionally more functional for you. 
It's, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that though. I mean, cause when I had my accident, I mean, even back in 2000, that was in 2005, we just, I remember going into the, my prosthetist for the first time. And I mean, they were still making stuff out of wood, right? you know, so, like, I guess that statement would be more true now than then. That's, that's exactly what it is now. I mean, if you have these, you know, if you have an accident like that, um, you know, I look at the, you know, the prosthetic that I have and what I'm able to do and how I'm able to function with it. You know, I would never choose just to have something that essentially sits there and, you know, flops around <laughs> yeah. opposed to, uh, you know, having a very functional, you know, something that's very functional. Right. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they obviously still have their limitations and it's got its pros and cons, but, you know, with, with the technology that, you know, that they have now within the prosthetic world. Um, I mean, there's, there's not a lot of limits, on things anymore you can essentially go out there and, and almost do anything you want would mm-hmm. to come back to the the accident when you were in the hospital when you say that you woke up a week later um were you in a coma during that time or did they did they do like an induced coma or yeah they they put me in a medically induced coma so they essentially woke me up told me what they had done and then they put me back into the medically induced coma again Oh, wow. I was Whoa. in there for a few more days as, you know, I, I honestly don't even know what the whole rationale was, but, um, yeah, then they end up. That know, is a bit weird. <laughs> it's a bit weird to be like, let's wake them up, tell them the news, put them back to sleep. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know what's fucking you know, bizarre. I don't know whether they think you start dealing with things on yeah, a yeah. you know subconscious level or whatever it was, but yeah, I mean, you just got uh, woken up and then that, like I said, that was essentially, you know, it, um, you know, my hospital stay was not <laughs> the funnest one. <laughs> I've sure. been in there a few yeah. times, but, um, you know, there just, there weren't a lot of supports and things like that in place. Like I had a, a gentleman come in that was supposed to be like, uh, you know, an advisor or somebody that was supposed to give you hope, I guess. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm sitting there coming from a guy that, you know, very athletic played sports, you know, didn't, didn't know what to expect at this point. Cause, Again, we're at a time frame where YouTube and things like that are really in their infancy, right? Like mm-hmm, it's yeah. not like I could go out and search the internet and find mm-hmm. out what, you know, what was really out there. And, you know, I had, had this guy come hobbling in on a crappy old prosthetic leg and, you know, I'm expecting to be told that, oh, I'm going to be able to go out there and, you know, function at least in somewhat the, the way I used to sort of pre-accident and this guy comes in and tells me the worst or the best thing he can do is bowl oh, yeah. not, nothing against bowling but i was, <laughs> was like he was like you bowl or you be yeah. a pirate buddy that's it that's yeah. all you got, you got a <laughs> Halloween costume. yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's bowl or pirate that's, you know, that's right. funny is that it, it reminds me of uh when i when i started uh university i took this public relations degree and and um in the first semester we had like a, a, an alumni student come in to talk about the amazing job that they had. And they were supposed to like build up the, (laughs) like talk about why the program is so awesome. And it was so not exciting that I quit the program (laughs) afterwards. I was like, Oh, like this is the best you could do. I'm I'm kind of, you know, I really want to know Chris, like you, you had said earlier that, and and Brian kind of set this up well by, by asking about like how, your job as a firefighter, how is like, you know, your training as a firefighter really set you up for, um, you know, a place of having like a really solid foundation of mental health. And, and I mean, I guess that comes also with like sport and being a part of, you know, team sports and you were, you were obviously like an elite athlete. And so when you lose your leg, um, I'm wondering like, what is the, 
what's the turnaround time for you to kind of, you know, look at this guy who hobbled in and told you you got bowling and piracy and that's pretty much it to, to the point of going like, no, fuck that. You know what? Like I'm going to, I'm going to get out there and, and get after everything that I've, that I've always dreamed of doing and just, you know, make the most out of this. What, what was the, how quick did you kind of come around to this new life with one leg? It, it took a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were leaving the hospital um, and, you know, just going through the, the process that I went through, there weren't a lot of supports. Um, you know, I essentially got discharged from the hospital got sent home, um, you know, didn't even have an occupational therapist or anybody come out at that point to sort of assess to how you're going to start moving around and, you know, living life as, as a person at that point with like a very significant disability. Cause yeah. you, I mean, you can't start wearing your legs. And I mean, I had a ton, you know, I still deal with a ton of chronic pain within my residual limb, just because it was such a bad crush in- injury and so much traction was placed on those nerves. And then, Due to the the rush amputation, it was something that they aren't able to assess when they're doing the when they were actually doing the amputation. Um, and so it was a lot. Like I'm going to say, you know, probably four or five years, pretty much before I really uh-huh. got reintegrated into things. And I mean, a lot of that had to do with, you know, you're you're trying to find out, you know, you're trying to find yourself as a person, but also, you know, I would they were just pumping me full of fentanyl, yeah. essentially, mm-hmm. right? And so. You know, my my wife is is an absolutely amazing human being. And I mean, she's stuck with me through thick and thin. And it finally got to the point where we just had to go like this has to stop. You know, it was it was just such a band-aid type ideology around, you know, solving the pain issue that they weren't even looking at what it was doing to my day-to-day life. Right. And, you know, I'm just, it's, okay, pain goes up, give them more fentanyl. Pain goes up, give them more fentanyl. Okay, we'll try this drug. We'll try this drug. And, um, you know, sort of it all came to a head. I had my mom up visiting and, you know, they left me sitting in our office upstairs. Uh, went to Costco for like two hours and came back and I was literally staring at like a blank computer screen and I hadn't moved. Wow. And they were just like, well, you know, like, I think we, we see where this is this is at now. Right. And I mean, we, we called in the team of people that I was working with and just went, this is, you know, this is stopping. And I mean, I was very, very fortunate in the sense that, you know, I never had like a mental dependency on anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, my body had obviously developed a very significant um, physical dependency to it to the point where, I mean, when they started tapering me off the fentanyl, it was, they wanted to actually send me to a rehab facility and I mean, we declined doing that, but it was months of sitting at home with cold sweats and vomiting and just, wow. you know, a really shitty few months. But, you know, once we got through that and that clarity started coming back, um, you know, we really sat down and went, okay, what, what makes me happy at, at this point, right? And now that we're sort of beyond this you know, this really shitty time, which was, you know, unfortunately quite a few years, we, we sort of sat down and went, it's, you know, it's sports, it's athletics. It's the one thing that was missing from my life at that (laughs) point. I had, you know, I wasn't even going to the gym during those, those years, which is something that was a, a staple of my life for, you know, my entire hockey career, getting into firefighting, all of that stuff had always been a staple of my life. And and it's not just from a physical aspect, from that mental aspect too, right? Mm-hmm. For me, it's, I'd say it's even more mental than it is physical. And and so we just started really rolling with, with what I wanted to do with that. And I got out and started golfing. 
you know, that was sort of the first sport that I, you know, dipped my toes into the water with and, and it just took off, mm-hmm. um, you know, golf, got to play in the Canadian amputee open then got into mm-hmm. paracycling, you know, I'm very accident prone, you know, got onto our Canadian development <laughs> team, blew my knee out, um, you know, and it just, things started progressing, got back into snowboarding. And then finally, um, you know, in that whole process, I got back into firefighting again. So I was fortunate enough to be the first above knee amputee firefighter in North America. Whoa. And about the same time that happened, we found sledge hockey. You know, I had a, a buddy that played in the Western League here, Kieran Block, brought me out to uh, the World Sledge Challenge when it was being played in Calgary. And I'd seen sledge hockey before. And the one crazy thing with adaptive sports is, you know, there's really two sides that you see. You see the, oh, that's cute factor. And you see the holy shit factor, Mm -hmm. right? And so I'd seen sledge hockey a few times and I saw it at Flames games or, you know, and it's like, oh, you know, young kids out just puttering around and, you know, some are being pushed, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, that's not really, you know, not really for me. That's not my, you know, what, not the way I perceive how I want to play hockey. And when I saw our national team play, it was that holy shit moment, Mm -hmm. you know, and you see guys out there, you know, just cooking around them. I mean, the Billy Bridges shoots the puck 85 miles an hour with one arm. Whoa. You know, that's yeah. what's uh, wild. What is the, yeah. what, what is the hardest, what is the, what is the most surprisingly, like what's the thing about sledge hockey that as a spectator, you wouldn't know how incredibly hard it is. It's definitely balancing, right? Like your, our sleds are very custom made. So like mine sits at the absolute maximum height which is just a little over right around 12 inches up. So, I mean, it's like sitting on a giant riser yeah. and then my blades are seven sixteenths of an inch apart and that's all I balance on. So, I mean, you know, blades that are this close together and that's all that touches the ice. So, you know, you're out there and it's an incredibly violent sport because you can't, uh, you know, it's full contact to begin with, but it's not like stand-up hockey where you have that transitional piece where you're able to skate backwards, mm-hmm. right? I mean... If I'm going one-on-one against somebody, we're just going head to head. And his whole job is just to angle me out, run me out of real estate. Right. So <laughs> at some point you're getting hit with the puck. Right. So it's a lot of puck movement and a lot of uh, body positioning, but because you can't beat somebody one-on-one, right. It's very hard to de- You can't stick handle through somebody. You either beat them with speed or you beat them with physicality. So it's, it's a game. And I mean, then on top of that, you got picks on the end of your hockey sticks. So, yeah. I mean, you're getting cut and, you know, stabbed consistently. <laughs> it's uh, it's <laughs> a wild game to, to see, like I said, especially at that elite level, just because you have, I think there's so many pieces to it that people don't realize. Like, I mean, the fastest guy on the national team right now, I think he does a lap and just right around 17 seconds. Wow. Oh, wow. That's so incredible. And I mean, what, like, I mean, the fact, like, what are the, what, like, what are the, what are the, uh, I haven't watched an all-star game in a while, but like, I mean, I feel like they're doing, I feel like the fastest guys are doing laps in like uh, 12, maybe. No, I think Connor did 13, eight something last year and he was just above 14 the year before. I mean, you you think about going on, you think about going, uh, you know, somebody like somebody who's his size. I mean, he McDavid's what, like six, he's like six, two, something like that. Propelling himself forward with, two long ass legs versus being on a being sat down on a sled it's crazy (laughs) going like marginally (laughs) slower (laughs) that's crazy
Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Have you ever seen the movie Murderball? Yes, I have. Yeah. That's wild. So it's a uh, chair. Have you seen Murderball? Oh, yeah. So I, I saw Murderball, I don't know, years, probably years like ago. 15 years ago yeah. or something. But I, I remember, um, <laughs> like, I, I've, I've thought probably like most people have about what it would like, would it, what it would be like to lose a, a limb at some point in your life. And I always thought growing up as an athlete that the one saving grace for me, the one thing that would help keep me going forward would be like getting into sports or doing something like that. And uh, when I saw the murder ball documentary, I realized how fucking cool, um, like particularly wheelchair rugby is, but, (laughs) but also sports like, uh, sledge hockey. But I'm curious for you, Chris, like, dude, uh, I mean, like, look at this. We're just looking at some of it right now. It's being um, a, a hockey player who is like, uh, had a, a career that was, was hoping to play in the NHL. Um, I'm surprised that you you didn't come to sledge hockey sooner after mm-hmm. your accident. Like what? Why? What? Why? Why the sort of longer path to you know playing golf and getting into cycling before uh, hockey? Honestly, it was exposure. Um, like the the golf thing happened very organically for me. It was something that I think is as far as especially like amputees go. Um, it is probably one of the more, it's one of the first sports that you sort of get introduced to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, more so like I met somebody through the Canadian amputee or sorry, not the Canadian, the Alberta amputee association here, sports association. And that was one sport that they really pushed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was just that, you know, go out. And I mean, plus being a hockey player, golf was also a big part of my summer, uh, you know, summer experiences, I guess. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and so it was just one of those things. And then, I mean, the, the paracycling side happened because we had, uh, somebody pulled me aside in a mall Mm -hmm. or the national development coach saw me crutching through a mall and just (laughs) pulled me aside. He's like, Hey, do you want to try paracycling? Right. Like it was just a, it was a very weird point in time because it it wasn't like you got to see a lot of things. Right. And, Mm -hmm. And so, and I had, like, I had seen sledge hockey and I just was like, you know, it, it, out West here, it's not as, it hasn't grown, I guess, like it has out East, like, okay. you know, whether that's population, more so population base, I guess. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's just one of those things that, you know, it hadn't grown to that point out East or out West here. And it all depends, actually, a lot of the grassroots programs, uh, weirdly, you know, at that point, didn't actually embrace the high performance side of things. Mm. So even when I got into sledge hockey in 2011, um, you know, I got in right at the very end of the year. I think it was November. And by uh, what was it, January, end of January of 2012, I was already in our national development program. <laughs> and was actually, but then like this is the insane part of, of adaptive sports is our association here in Calgary literally came and said, you can't play here anymore. Like you're too good. 
<laughs> the <laughs> ultimate so compliment. compliment. <laughs> and, uh, so I ended up having to go and, you know, secure my own ice and practice by myself. And, you know, it's, it, it's just, it's a very bizarre world in that sense. Cause like I said, you do really end up with these two <laughs> different groups and depending on how that grassroots program is run and how they sort of organize things like our Calgary association at that point, and they've grown in leaps and bounds since then. Um, they just wanted nothing to do with it. Right. Mm. Um, they just, you know, we're happy having guys out there just doing whatever. And if somebody came out there and excelled, then it, it just, I, they didn't look at it in the light that we can grow from him. He can teach us. They just went, no, right. we just don't want him here anymore. And, and off you go. Is it like, is there an aspect to it that it is like, Hey, for some of these people who are just getting out here and exercising and getting back into, you know, being part of a team and playing a sport, um, for the enjoyment of it, for the guy who's trying to excel, it almost takes the, like, is it perceived to like take the fun out of it for the guys who are just there to have something to, to sort of like keep them going, if that makes sense? No, no. And I think that is definitely a, a piece of what happens just because it is such a small community, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's not like, you know, able-bodied hockey where, you know, the, the hockey school that, that I help with, um, you know, you're got hundreds and hundreds of kids going out in each age group, right? I mean, it's, uh, you know, you've got maybe, you know, a hundred players total, you know, at that point, I think there was only maybe 60 players total within Calgary. Mm-hmm. that were that were all playing sledge hockey and so it you have very few people that are are wanting to really i guess improve their game and and are striving for something greater than what that association holds right and and so for the people that can actually get beyond that then you're getting into a very small mm. small number right and I- it's easier to get rid of them than it is to change the larger picture i'm curious about speaking about like at a adaptation adaptive sport and like and and focusing on um finding ways to partake in hobbies or or even more um professional levels of sport for people with um amputations i i think a lot about the roles that uh prosthetists and and an occupational therapist can play in your life and um i know that in speaking with uh a few occupational therapists and prosthetists I've always thought of it as being like one of the coolest jobs ever to do either of, of both professions um, for the reason that it seems like a job where there's like constantly innovation happening and and the the people who are who do really amazing jobs of that will will find innovative solutions for their for their clients or the people that they're working with so that they can you know live the most fulfilling life. I'm curious for you, like what the role of, of, of if you've worked with um, an occupational therapist and um, what your relationship with your prosthetist is like. Yeah, I haven't done a whole lot of work with with occupational therapists per se. Um, you know, my role with my prosthetist, he's an absolutely amazing guy. I mean, I, you know, when I first had my accident, again, like I said, wasn't a lot of direction and I just got essentially assigned a prosthetist. I didn't even know that, that you know, there were, a few of them in Calgary. And I mean, the first guy that I went with was an older gentleman, very stuck in his ways, was an absolute train wreck. <laughs> um, I was like jamming my leg into a socket to the point where it wouldn't come out, like, because I, I have so many volume fluctuations, things like that. And mm. ultimately ended up, you know, finding out that, hey, 
holy shit, there's more prostitutes in the city than just, you know, this one guy. And, and the gentleman that I ended up going with, Steve Scott, has just been unreal. You know, he's gone, he thinks outside of the box for, for me. And I mean, I've been fortunate enough to work with a very big prosthetic company, Autobach, who uh, have just done you know, incredible things for me. I've got their running legs, I've got their running foot. Um, you know, when I was going through getting back into firefighting again, post-accident, um, you know, the leg that I ha- I'm i wearing right now uh, is worth about 140 grand. Wow. Like they, these legs are atrociously expensive, but Autobach was so fired up that they had somebody that was willing to go out and actually try and try and do this. I mean, just because it hadn't been done to the point where you, we, it was like a full time, you know, on the floor firefighter. They were <laughs> sending me out, they were sending me out knees. Like, and I mean, you're talking, you know, $80,000 knees. And I think I blew up like five or six of them. Whoa. And their, uh, their, their techs were just loving it. Cause they're like, <laughs> yeah, this is now we know what we need to do, right? We yeah. can, we can make this leg better so that people can go out there and, and function, you know, at whatever, whatever level they want to. And I mean, really the only thing that, that holds people back with any of that is, is unfortunately cost. Um, you know, like I said, I mean, my legs extremely expensive, but I mean, I've got sort of the best of, of everything, but even getting back to where you were talking about with sport, uh, the sport side of things is really crappy that way. Cause each of these legs is worth, you know, my running leg is 10 grand, my snowboarding legs, 10 grand, my skating legs, 10 grand, like, you it's it's very difficult to get involved in a lot of these sports just because the cost is so significant and even within sledge hockey you know it's it's not like me taking my son to go buy a pair of hockey skates and a hockey stick you know go to sport check and buy him a hundred dollar pair of skates and a fifty dollar stick to go putter you know putter around just your your starting sled is like six seven hundred dollars can we can we actually can we talk about that because like i i feel like we sort of skimmed over this um as most people are are listening uh, everybody's listening no one's watching this um can we can you just kind of give us like a rundown on what sledge hockey is because uh I feel like for folks who aren't aware, they might have their mind a bit blown by knowing exactly what's going on on the ice. It's pretty crazy yeah. to see. <laughs> well, I, I first of all, I implore anybody to go watch it or to pull it up on YouTube. But yeah. I mean, it's it's essentially hockey, but we are sitting. Um, so we're in a sled that, um, like I had mentioned, uh, is you're strapped into this thing and you're sitting basically balancing on two blades so i mean as you progress up your sled gets taller blades get closer together that allows for a lot more maneuverability things like that and then we play with two hockey sticks opposed to one uh so we've just got i mean warrior bauer all these guys make sticks for mm. for us sledge hockey guys now um so they have a little bit of a different lie on them they're not i mean like you couldn't use a stand-up stick just they kind of they look like knee hockey sticks almost. Like my my nephews are big into knee hockey, and they're like these little short sticks. Are they like are they are, like are they ve- are they very different from that? Like those little those little like sort of you know two foot long sticks. You don't mean mini, you don't mean mini, yeah. mini sticks. Yeah, yeah, mini sticks. Yeah, oh we yeah, call no, it, we call it knee hockey. Much different than that. Okay. Um, yeah, like they, they essentially have the same size blade as a hockey stick. Mm. It's and the same size shaft. It's just that curve where. You know, it comes where the, the shaft meets the blade is just mm-hmm. a lot more elongated. Right. They're yeah, just yeah. so that when we're holding our sticks in our hands, like we're able to reach forward and pick and pull with them. Right. 
And the um, picks are and the picks are on like the butt end of the stick, right? Yes. Yeah, the, the yeah. picks are on the butt end of the stick. So that's that's what you use to propel yourself around with. So yeah, you're essentially balancing on the on the two blades, and then you're having to move and stick handle with your arm. So you've got you've got one blade under your ass, one blade under your heels, right? Nope. Or like where no where where, where are just the blades one, located? One blade under your ass. Oh, that's the that's the singular blade. There's no there's not two blades under. Oh, sorry, yeah, that's right. But like so, my blades, like I said, are are quite close together, seven sixteenths of an inch apart. And they're, I'm just, they're right under my ass. They're side by side. And did you say that, did you say that, did you say that like, as you progress, like as you become more stable, the blades on the sled become closer together. Like as you, you, you would, you would get them closer together as you become more comfortable or more, more well-balanced. Yeah. Like if I brought you guys out in in sleds, I mean, I'd put you in what I call like a a starter sled where the blades are probably, you know, four inches apart and the the sled isn't really high. Right. So, I mean, you can get out there and you can move around, but turning things like that, um, obviously a lot more difficult, right? Yeah. And then as you sort of progress, you just keep bringing your blades in closer and you get a riser kitch and you start moving up so that you're, depending on disability and things like that, because it changes for everybody, right? Like right. my buckets offset differently. I've got forward dump in my bucket because I have activation of my core. Um, you know, so it's different for different people with disabilities yeah. and, and how you set up your sled that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately you end up getting it set up to the point where they make you finally like almost like a solid frame as far as the sled goes. And then your bucket's a custom made bucket that, uh, you know, is molded to fit you. Right. So it's, it essentially fits like a pair of hockey skates right, and you yeah. ratchet yourself in and it just sucks in. And then, yeah, you're, you're ha- like I said, having to propel yourself and stick handle at the same time with your arms. How it's much wild technology? How, how much did your um, bench press go up from like pre-accident to like uh, <laughs> being at the peak of your sledge yeah. hockey career? Actually, you're not really doing a lot of bench in sledge. Like I, I was a strong guy beforehand, so you look like <laughs> always, <laughs> always been able to push a lot of Could've weight. It's actually your back that just becomes like massively overdeveloped. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You're just, you know, you're out on the ice and I mean, you're just spending hours and hours essentially on like a roll machine. Yeah, right. right. You're yeah. just, so your upper back just, you know, there's a lot of guys that if you don't watch what you're doing, you actually end up with like this crazy sort of like forward mm. shoulder roll because mm. just you're, if you're in your sled that much and you're not doing anything proactive to bring, everything back to sort of a neutral stance again, it yeah. uh, caused some serious issues. I suppose, like, is that something you have to worry about as being an amputee? Like in, in terms of like, just the way you use your body on a day-to-day basis, not having one side of your leg to to kind of compensate for the rest of your body? Like, is that, like, not not just in sport, but like in just general everyday use of your of your body, do you, do you find that there's, you have to do like exercises to kind of offset the missing limb? Oh, yeah. I mean, because it's the way you walk with your prosthetic. Uh, you know, if I'm not walking with my prosthetic, I'm using crutches or I'm hopping. Right. Um, you know, but the, the prosthetic doesn't necessarily work exactly the same way that uh, that your regular leg would work because the, the way the knee follows through, you almost have to lift. You know, you've got a little bit of almost like a hitch in your step. Yeah. So that that, that toe can come through on your prosthetic. So hmm. you're putting a lot of extra strain on, you know, the other side of your body. So for me, my left side of my body, I've jacked up my ankle more times than I can shake a stick out. I've had multiple shoulder surgeries. I've had multiple right. knee surgeries. Um, yeah, it's just become sort of par for the course with it, especially if you're living a more active life because you're you're that much more reliant on mm-hmm. 
on that side of your body. I mean, there's just no way that uh, you yeah. can. I mean, that stuff happens. That stuff happens. You know, whether you, whether you, if you're if you don't have an, a, any amputated limbs, like, and you're heavily involved in a sport, like when I look at Brian from the years that he's paddled, like yeah. Brian's shoulders will never. Your shoulders were no. Your shoulders will never be what they would have been yeah, if you yeah. didn't paddle. Like, Even my, they're, they're I, just, I grew up racing uh, sprint canoeing, and you paddle on one side or the other for yeah. your entire career. And, yeah, and your lats um, on the one side, and and <laughs> I paddle silly. on my left side. And my like it's even silly. you're you're controlling your boat with a yeah. flick of your wrist. Um, it's called a J stroke, and like my wrists, and they yeah. just crack all the time. And yeah. I mean, from hockey, growing, <laughs> from playing from playing hockey and being left-handed and shooting and twisting, having that right twist. With every shot that you take, for the thousands and thousands and thousands of shots that you take from your whole life of playing hockey, when I, whenever I, and and then so for context, Chris, I, I when I was twenty and I stopped playing hockey, I got into yoga and like really, really, really chipped away at all the flexibility and mobility issues that kind of hockey uh, gave to me over the years. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the one, like, there's a few things that stand out, but one of them is when I twist to the left, no matter, it's been 12 years now, when I twist to the left, it is noticeably more uncomfortable and weird than when I twist to the right. And like, that will never go away because for 20 years of my life, I just went twist to the right, twist to the right, twist to the right, never go back. Yeah. Like it's just always, it's always weird. Were you that way with everything though? Like I'm, I'm weird when I played hockey. I was a left-handed shot, but I do everything right. Do you golf like, right? I golf right, bat right. So like, weird. That's so it doesn't everything make sense. Right except played do, hockey do you, left. So do you shoot a rifle left or right? I shoot a rifle on on my right side. Hold on. What's your? Okay, would this be right? Left, left hand trigger finger. Left hand trigger. No, I would. Right, right hand. I would right hand. Yeah, yeah, I'm right. I'm right. Everything except for shooting. Yeah, this shooting is, a gun. I do. This is the but. most boring podcast. Ever. <laughs> uh, Chris, I, I want well, here. Here, I want to step it up. Do you, do, you, do you experience phantom pain? Is is that something you've you've experienced? No, absolutely. Um, it's probably my biggest issue that I have when it comes to pain. Um, oh wow! Just it's never for most amputees. It dissipates over the years, but for me, just because there was such a traumatic and. <laughs> quick amputation on that leg like i feel i can always feel my toes wow. my toes always feel like they're there and then so that's the phantom feeling that i always have and then the phantom pain is just it literally feels like somebody's jamming a nail through my foot and it's oh my god like just uh i mean it's an absolutely horrid feeling because you and there's nothing you can do to stop it it's i was just, gonna say uh, is there any way to treat it they they try and do it like things like meter therapy um yes. You know, they they have things like that. They can try nerve blocks. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, it's because it's all up here. Like, it's all in your head, right? Yeah. So with the trauma <laughs> that happened to my nerves, it just, my, my brain still sends signals down there. And really? so when it doesn't get that signal back, what it does is it just creates sort of a loop and it just amplifies that pain signal more and more. Well, we were we were just talking to somebody. We were just talking. We've had we've had a few conversations over the past couple of months with people who have had chronic pain. Um, particularly, uh, particularly one guy out in BC, Keith Meldrum, who had a really bad car accident when he was 16 years old. Almost died from his injuries. Had had a lot of surgeries to keep him alive, and he ended up having chronic pain for. I mean, until now. I mean, his, the accident was in the 80s, and he basically kind of said like. Yeah, it's, it's, it is a, it's the nerves that your nerves are just sending these signals, even though the thing that, that, like, there's no, there's nothing happening there. Like 
you know, he, he doesn't have an amputation, but there's no pain. There's no, there's no reason for there to be pain in the area that he's feeling it. Similarly to, you know, having phantom pain, it's like the foot's not there. So how can there, how can there be pain there that there's this, that there's this connection there where the, where the nerves are, the nerves are still, are still firing those signals for some reason. We actually had a really interesting, and, and we kind of went off on a really interesting path with that conversation around the role of, the role of your nervous system and the role of stress and uh, like stressful triggers and how those two things really like interplay with each other in terms of those signals firing. I don't think stopping them is the kind of the, I don't think stopping them is the goal of it, but sort of like using like mindfulness techniques to calm the nervous system, to limit the amount of signals, like pain signals that those nerves are firing it was really really interesting conversation around around chronic pain in general chris do you do you realize like do you feel that phantom pain in any time in particular more than another like if you're experiencing more stress or is it just totally random for me it's it's more like fatigue within my body and i mean i so i think that i mean also involves like i because of the the chronic pain i don't get a lot of sleep at night like mm-hmm. i especially when i i've learned during the day to really keep my mind busy and I try and stay as busy as I can. And, and when I do that, I'm able to keep things a little bit more at bay. But when I lay down and I try and relax and get that like sort of shut off, that's when it just like turns itself up to 11 almost. Mm-hmm. And, and then it just starts firing. And the more fatigued I am, the worse, the worse it gets. And it's just, uh, it sucks because it's this crazy cycle where it's almost like every 30 seconds, it just hits you and it's like, like I said, somebody jamming a nail through your foot and you're just mm. spiked right up and then you calm, you get to calm down again. And I, it's definitely, yeah, like, I mean, then it almost seems again like stress, I guess, because then you start thinking about it and worrying about it. Right. And that just, yeah. again, seems to like make the situation even worse. Yeah. And the only way I, I found to be able to get out of that sort of cycle is I need to somehow get myself to sleep. And then it's almost like hitting a little bit of a reset button. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's the yeah. worst when you want to try to fall asleep. That's bad. Yeah. You oh, when yeah. you, when you <laughs> hit that, when you hit that yeah. time in bed where you, where you, you realize to yourself that you've been sitting in bed, not sleeping and you're like, yeah. I, I got yeah, to really try. Yeah. The, the, <laughs> and you're the, like, the, Oh, the, now that I'm trying. But the difference is the difference is when you have to try to go to sleep because it's the only thing that will like get rid of the pain that yeah. you're having. Yeah. <clears throat> Dude, that's a, that's a different type of uh, uh, need for sleep. Uh, Chris, what do you, um, like, what would you say is the biggest thing that your amputation has, has taken away from you? Uh, which sounds like a silly question. Cause obviously it's your leg, but, but, Aside from your leg, what's the biggest thing that your experience with having an amputation uh, has taken away from you? Oh, that's, <laughs> um, you know, if, if I, I guess if I had to choose anything, it would just be, you know, being able to spend a little bit more time with my kids in a, you know, more active background, I guess, just because mm-hmm. I am limited in the way that you know, I, I get to wear my leg and, and how I can go out and, you know, enjoy time with them. My kids are very, very active. So, you know, but they don't know me any different. You know, we had had children post accident. So, you know, that's from a, from that side, that's been the probably the hardest thing. But, you know, I do a fair bit of public speaking and things like that. And, you know, I, that's probably one of the best questions that I ever had directed at me was if I could go back and change that day, would I? 
And, you know, I, I had to put a lot of thought into it. And I mean, the way I look at it now is I honestly wouldn't change that day. You know, it was a crappy few seconds that day that really altered the course of my life. But, you know, at the end of the day, I've got to get back to, you know, have an incredible family, have an incredible wife. You know, I essentially got to do both things I dreamed of as a kid. You know, I got to represent my country. I got to be a firefighter at the same time. Um, you know, I get to live a, a pretty cool life and, you know, everyone's got to deal with shit in a, in a different way. And, you know, for me, whether that's, you know, the mental side of things that I have to deal with, whether it's like the depression or anxiety or the pain side, um, you know, to, to do what I get to do and, and get to be the dad that I get to be right now. And the, the husband that I get to be and role model, I don't think I would change it. Like it's mm. something that I've, I've learned to embrace over the years and, you know, just, you, you got to find the, the best out of it, I guess. Right. What would you say is the biggest thing that it's given you other than all the things you just said? It can't be any of those things. It's got to be something I, different. I, I actually, <laughs> I actually, cause I mean, that was a really good answer to that. What, what you just said before, but I really did want to ask one more thing before we wrapped up, which is, which is about the, um, getting back into firefighting, um, because we didn't really get to the point where you actually um, got to get back into firefighting. And saying that you were the first um, amputee in North America to become a firefighter, I imagine that that's a pretty lofty goal to set when nobody else has done that before and going, well, I want to I do this. this and is opening my, the door. My dream in life, yeah, and I others. wanted to do this. So yeah. like, how, how did you go about becoming a firefighter? It was, uh, I mean, it was a big battle essentially, right? Like you said, I, I didn't have any footsteps to follow in that sense. So going out there and sort of leading the way for it, I was very fortunate that my fire instructor when I went to school up in Vermilion became the chief out in the MD here. And when when he, he just called me up one day and said, hey, is this something you want to give a try? I mean, it was honest, honestly something I had, you know, hadn't really put any thought into. And I was you know, so obviously I said yes. And I just started going on the process. I knew that, you know, the first thing was obviously going to be passing the physical mm -hmm. and in getting through that, which, you know, I, as far as all the education, you know, I had everything in place already that way, getting through the physical and making sure that I was, you know, physically able, but also, you know, mentally able at that point, because obviously there was still a lot of, you know, and, and still is a lot of mental shit that, that I deal with, but not much different than anyone else. Um, you know, I, I started going through that process. And like I said, I was very fortunate to be working with a, a prosthetic company that was willing just to go to the ends of the earth to try and, and make this happen. And so as we're going through this process, it was, uh, like I said, it was a process and it was a weird process because I remember showing up, you know, for the first sort of orientation and stuff at the hall and, you know, the perception that people had of me, you know, it was very much, uh, they were judging a book by its cover at that mm. point. And they see a guy missing a leg and they're just going like, you know, what the hell is this guy doing here? Mm -hmm. Right? Like, why is this guy here? And it was, uh, it was a, you know, a very tough thing for me to deal with in that sense, because it's, it's something that I go through my life trying not to do, yeah. uh, you know, judging a book by its cover and, and just to be there and literally know that people are <laughs> talking behind your back and, and, you know, I'm not going to say they were almost hoping for failure, but I think mm. in, in some of their cases they were. And I mean, it, at the end of the day, 
you know, I, I had a very good support group there. Like I said, I had my fire chief and I had our, our deputy chief and, and guys, you know, a few of the guys on the hall that, that had knew me from, uh, you know, before. And they were just 100% behind me. And they, they made sure that, you know, basically they shut everyone's mouth. And then when it came to actually going out there and, and performing, you know, I, I'm, I by no means was the first, but I by no means was the last. And, you know, to go out there and, and for my first time doing it to finish, you know, sort of in that top half of, of the people out there, you know, applying for this. I mean, it, it shut a lot of people's mouths over yeah. what was going on. You know, it's like, well, there, you just had a one-legged guy kick your ass, at, <laughs> you know, at a, at a physical, which is geared toward people with two legs. And I mean, yeah. from that point, you know, these people just, you know, they, they inspired me on and, and continued to push me forward. And I mean, I was fortunate enough, like I was the first above knee amputee firefighter to do the, uh, the fire fit challenge, which is the games that you guys mm-hmm. were, you know, you mm-hmm. see on TSN and things like that. Right. Yeah. So it's just, it's that incredible support group that, mm-hmm. you know, I've been able to establish over the years and, and within the, the fire industry, like I said, at that the guys that I knew there that I knew that were my, you know, my brothers were the guys that, through thick and thin right they they weren't gonna let something like that um you know stand in my way they they made sure that i had all the supports needed so when it came that time to to do that there was gonna be no issue mm. awesome. well folks if you want to see this one legged man kick some more ass uh <laughs> february 16th the uh canada's ultimate challenge will be hitting cbc and cbc gem be sure to tune in. Uh, I mean, I'm, I guess we can't ask you who wins because that'd be a spoiler alert. You're NBA, you're probably getting a lot of shit. So uh, we'll wait, wait to see who the winner is. But um, Chris, uh, we can't wait to watch the show. We're super stoked to have sat down and talked to you. And uh, how can people find you? How can people stay up to date with the cool stuff that you're up to and your, and your athleticism? Uh, I'm pretty predominant on Instagram. So just uh, at cedarstrand21 is my IG handle and at seeds25 on Twitter. Um, yeah, and I mean, I'll be be pumping the show out there and and doing what I can that way all the way up until the premiere in February. And yeah, it, it'll be an incredible show to watch. I mean, just such a cool idea that they have, and and uh, the landscapes and the challenges are are absolutely insane. So I definitely recommend everyone uh, tuning in on February sixteenth. Very cool. cool. Well, thanks, dude. It. This has been uh, a real treat. Thank you. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me, gentlemen. Well, there you go, folks. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. As always, we are coming at you Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And if you are a fan of the podcast and you want to support the podcast, there's a number of ways you can do that. First of all, you can leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. We love reading them. You can simply rate the podcast on the Spotify mobile app, if that's where you're listening. Or if you want to join the conversation, hop on over to our Discord. The link is in the show notes of this episode. And uh, we have a lovely little community over there of sickos and non-sickos all hanging out, chatting. And uh, hey, you could even help produce the podcast over there if you want. You can, again, find that link in the show notes below. Sick Boy Podcast is produced and co-hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, and Brian Stever. The show is managed by Jeffrey Lonis over at Talent Bureau. The sound design of this episode is brought to you by Donovan the CPAP Morgan. And of course, the theme music is from the band Take Part. That is it for this week. I'm Jeremy. 
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.